The following audio is from the Grove Church. For more information about the church or to listen to previous sermons, visit our website at grove.church. So I'm not sure. I received some advice in the lobby that I should wear these during my sermon. I'll let you be the judge if it's good advice or bad advice. Uh, Good advice? I'm I'm not wearing it the whole sermon. All right. I tell you what, I mentioned this once before. She does it almost every time she helps lead our host teams, Bonnie Herzog. Um, We have little bottles of water up for us underneath the chairs up front. So when we come up to speak, we've got them. And she always decorates them with some kind of crazy thing. And so today, we had little masks, superhero masks. This is an Autobot mask. Um, And so Bonnie always makes us laugh every time. So there you go. There's that. Hey, welcome to church. My name is Ryan. If I haven't had the opportunity or privilege to meet you yet, one of the pastors on staff. And we are continuing today in our Bad Advice message series um, that we started last week. And before we dive in, I've got just one uh, public service announcement from my heart to your hearts. And uh, you may have already noticed it, um, but fall is coming, people. All right? The leaves are changing. The weather's getting colder. All right? Anybody in here want to admit you've already had a pumpkin spice latte from Starbucks? Come on. There you go. Even in August, no judgment for you at all. All right? I love the fall. And I know everybody in here who loves summer because basically nobody cheered when I said that. You hate me right now. But you know what? I don't care. I love the fall, okay? You've had your time, and now it's our time, all right? Daylight savings is coming, a.k.a. dark at 445, and I love it, all right? I'm just glad that nobody booed me. Last service, I got booze, okay? Um, Oh, I got some booze? All right, I wasn't going to do it, but if you're going to boo, I'm going to see your booze, and I'm going to raise you this. Yeah! That's right. Wasn't going to do it. I, w- I was only going to go as far as fall, but then you booed me. So now you get Christmas too. Mark your calendars. It's that time, people. It's that time almost. All right. Well, hey, we started this new message series last week. Pastor Nick opened it up for us. And it's the idea of looking at the advice. Uh, last week was through the lens of the advice that you and I receive. How do we know if the advice we're getting from certain individuals, or there's other ways we get advice as well, through culture, TV, politics, all of that. How do we weigh what is good advice or not? What advice should we take, or what advice should we leave where it's at? What is going to help us get better or move towards God, and what won't? Today, I'm going to flip the script a little bit, and I want us to look at this topic, bad advice, through a different lens And I want to look at it through the lens of the advice that you and I offer other people. And Nick opened up with uh, some funny uh, wisdom quotes last week. So, of course, I had to put together some of my own, all right? And this is bad advice that I would highly recommend that you don't give somebody else, okay? I got four different ones. In the the spirit of back to school, students and kids are going back to school, and all the parents said amen to that. Thank you, Jesus, for school. Um, Or maybe you're faculty and you're heading back to school. I just want to encourage you, this might not be a piece of advice that you want to give somebody. You could say, but don't, hey, for a dollar, you could buy any candy that you want in the vending machine. Or for $2, you could buy a brick and get all the candy in the candy machine. That's bad advice. Okay, don't take that advice. That's detention or jail time, depending on the, the person that does that. Okay, that's bad Advice. Hey, I got a couple for you in the dating category, okay? Fellas, if you've got a friend who's going on, uh, on a first date, don't tell him to do this, okay? Don't say, hey, if she tries to hold your hand on the first date, 
squeeze her hand as hard as you can until she cries. Women love a strong man. That's bad advice. Okay, you don't want to give that advice. You're not getting a second date if you do that, okay? Here's another one. Maybe you know somebody who's in the dating season of their life. This is probably not a good thing to tell them. Um, You could tell them, hey, when on a date, answer every phone call and text message you get immediately, even if it's in the middle of a conversation, because it'll show your date how popular you are. Okay, no, that's bad advice. Okay, you're probably not going to get another date after that. Last one I'll give you categorically, I guess you could say this might be in the life safety category. You can decide whether it's good advice or bad advice. Anybody in here, by a raise of hands, you ever been on vacation to the beach anywhere? Maybe California, Hawaii, Fiji, Jamaica. I hate all of you because I want to go. Okay. Maybe you know somebody who's going on vacation to the beach, and maybe you offer them this piece of advice. You could say, hey, if you invite a friend to go swimming with you, your chances of getting eaten by a shark will drop by 50%. All right? Now, that may be good advice or bad advice, depending on if you're the invitor or the invitee. But uh, if you're ever going to the beach and a friend invites you to go swimming with them, you might want to think twice, okay? Um, Pastor Nick, when opening this up last week, asked a very particular question. I want to ask it again. I think it, um, it bears repeating for us. Not all of us were here last week. So I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. just want you to be honest. This isn't a trick question. You're not going to look dumb. Um, God may or may not strike you in your seat with lightning if you do. I'm not saying he will, but I'm not saying that he won't, okay? But... But has anybody in here, have you ever received bad advice? Anybody ever in here in one way or another? Yeah, almost all of us, okay? Everybody's got their hands up. Let me ask you another question. Anybody in here ever given bad advice? A lot less hands, and they're a lot slower to go up, right? We just got done admitting that we've all received bad advice. So there's a lot of people out there giving bad advice, but why is it harder to raise our hands when asked, have we ever given bad advice? And there's probably a plethora of different reasons why it might be harder to do that. I think one of the main ones probably comes down to intention, right? Most of us in this room, whenever we've offered advice, it was, good, it was with good intention, right? If you're in here and you're intentionally giving bad advice to people to ruin their lives, okay, we need to pray for you and have you delivered, all right? But most of us give advice with good intention, And that may be one of the reasons why it's hard for us to think that we've given bad advice. And we're going to take a look at a a, a passage of Scripture. In fact, it's a whole book um, in the Bible. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to pull them out. Always encourage you to bring your Bible with you, one of the greatest resources we have as Christians. Um, Some of the greatest advice you could ever get about life and what you're facing is found within these pages. I want you to turn to Job chapter 1, verse 1. And as I say that, anybody who's ever read Job is like, are you serious? Right? Job is not right, the, the book you usually go to when you want to feel good, right? when you're looking for encouragement and you want to leave you know, a room excited. Job is a very, in some ways, depressing book to read. Now, it's an incredible book. There are some great fundamental biblical truths that you and I can find in the book of Job, but it's hard to find them, right? We, we see all that Job went through, and it makes us sad. And I don't know if anybody else has ever thought this thought that I've thought when reading Job, but whenever I read Job, I'm like, oh God, please, no, don't let this be my lot in life, right? right? What Job goes through, the suffering that he endures is not a fun read, and yet within it are some great takeaways for you and I on this topic of bad advice, and I simply want to read it to you, starting verse 1, chapter 1. This is 42 chapters long. We're not going to read it all today, obviously. I'm going to kind of give you the bookends, the beginning and the end, and kind of paraphrase the middle for us, but it says this 
In verse 1, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all of the people of the east. His sons used to throw and take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send to have them purified. Early in the morning, um, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned against God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular custom. Okay, now here's where it gets interesting. Verse 6, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered him from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything that he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself you may not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And the rest of chapter 1 explains to us the things that happen to Job. So in essence, you've got Satan saying, hey, I've been roaming the earth God calls out, hey, have you noticed my boy Job? I mean, upright, loves God, shuns evil. Have you noticed him? And Satan says, well, of course, he's good. You you put a hedge of protection around his family. I mean, of course he loves you. You, you, You've helped bless everything that he puts his hand. Of course he loves you. But you take those things that he has, those blessings that you've given him, your protection on him, and surely he will curse you to his face. And so God gives him, Satan, the ability, the authority to go and do this. And what we see over the rest of this chapter is it goes a little something like this. A servant comes running to Job and he reports to Job, hey, I was over here with your cattle and this, these people came and they stole all your cattle and they killed all the servants and I'm the only one that's escaped and so you've lost all your cattle over here. And before that servant gets done finishing his sentence, another servant comes running from the other direction and says, Job, Job, all of your sheep were over here and lightning struck the ground and killed all of your sheep and all of your servants except for me. I'm the only one to have escaped. And then before he finishes his sentence, another servant comes and reports all of the rest of your cattle and servants over here are dead except for me. This all happens instantaneously to Job. And you and I might look at that and say, all right, that sucks, you lost your cattle. Sometimes it's hard for you and I when we read this to really try and put ourselves in the shoes of the person who's experiencing it. To put it in 21st century terms, most of us have bank accounts. Most of us either own or rent a house. We've got bills that are due. Maybe you have a car payment, credit card payment, kids are in school, clothes, food, all these things you have to buy. The equivalent would be that you lost your job so you've got no more income. Your bank account is drained and not stolen where it's going to get given back to you. You have no money to buy food, to trade, to sell. You have no idea what you're going to do next. That's the plight of where Job is at. Remember, back then, cattle was currency in a lot of ways. 
right? You, some of the cattle were food that you would eat. Some of the cattle you would trade with. Some of the cattle you would get milk from and that you would drink for sustenance. Out of some of the animals, you would use their wool and their fur for clothing. All of a sudden, Job has none of that. It's gone in an instant. And some of you in this room have been in a season in your life in the past where you have faced financial difficulties like this that rocked you to your core. And in the middle of that, other people would try to lend their advice and encouragement to you, but never able to fully put themselves in experiencing the sleepless nights, the loss of weight, the, the, the wondering where and how am I going to make ends meet tomorrow. Some of you may be in that place right now. Some of you will be there in the future. But when you experience that like Job has, it wrecks you to your core, and I've been there. How am I going to provide for my children? How am I going, am I going to lose the house? Am I going to lose the car? What's going to happen? Are we going to be homeless? This is Job. And then what happens next is before that servant gets done finishing his words, another servant comes running and says, Job, we noticed from afar all of your sons and daughters were at a house at a feast and a storm came and the house fell in on itself and all of your children are dead. So not only has he lost everything, but now all of his children, which he loves, are gone. I don't know about you, but one of my greatest fears in my life, and I pray every day that it doesn't happen, is to thought of losing one of my kids, let alone all of them. Again, we read this, and because it's at arm's length, it, we could try to shelter ourselves, but try to put yourself in the place of where Job is. Everything has been ripped from him in a blink of an eye. And yet it says, in Scripture, that Job remains vigilant and does not curse God even through that. Chapter 2, verse 1, we see the same scenario happen, that angels come to present themselves to the Lord, and Satan comes along with them. God says, where have you come from? Satan gives the same answer. And God says, have you noticed my man Job here, how good he is, how upright he is? And then he adds this. And the Lord says, and he still maintains his integrity, though you enticed me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the bottom and the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat in the ashes. Pause on this story and the message today. This is another sermon for another day. But do you notice twice when Satan has a conversation with the Lord? This is incredible. We don't have time to cover it today. Satan can only do what he's been given authority and permission to do from God. We know the battle's been won. We know Jesus on the cross has overcome death, hell, and the grave for us. But Satan has yet to be thrown in the lake of fire, his final judgment and, and, and uh, punishment at the end in Revelation that we read. But when he roams and he's still out there, he's only still allowed to do what he has to ask permission to do. Another sermon for another day, but incredible to think about. And you might say, Ryan, this is all great. What does this have to do with bad advice? Because over the next 20 to 30 chapters of Job, five different individuals come to lend their advice to him because of the situation that he is in. The first to do that is his wife. The second is three groups of friends that come to visit him. And the last one is an individual that we don't know how he got there, but by the end starts to lend advice. It's either a standby or he came in at some point in time. 
And the first bit of advice we get in the very next verse where we left off reading, which by the way, now Job is afflicted to the core of who he is, not only lost everything, lost his kids, but now he's stricken with a disease that is painful. Some of us in here know family members or friends or have at least heard stories of individuals that have been so racked with either cancer or some form of disease that those individuals would rather just give up and it'd be easier to not have to go through the pain and, and, and wish, rather wish they were dead. This is now where Job is at to the only relief he gets is scraping a piece of broken pottery on himself. And now the first bit of advice comes and it comes from his wife. Verse nine says, his wife says to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. What? The first time I read this, all these years back, I'm like, okay, well, I know that's not the right answer, right? Curse God and die. That's not right. But his wife? And we don't know the intent. Remember that first question we asked? What was the intent of the advice that we give? We're not given an insight into what her intent is. On one hand, a person may argue on one side of the coin, well, she must not have loved God, must not have loved Job, gave bad wife. Well, on the flip side of that coin, somebody else may argue, well, maybe she just was so racked with what she was seeing, this person who she loved go through, that just out of trying to be humane, she'd rather him not have to suffer anymore. We don't know why, but this is what the first piece of advice that Job receives, and his response is pretty incredible. In verse 10, it says, he replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Pause. Fellas, I'm not encouraging you with advice to go home today and say that to your wives, okay? I don't want emails. I don't want people mad at me because you said, Ryan said to go home and say this, okay? This is just what Job said to his wife. He says, you're talking like a foolish woman. And I love this. Such an incredible nugget of truth. If you got your Bible, underline it, highlight it, do something. He says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all of this, it says Job did not sin in what he said. And now we see three more individuals come to give him advice in the very next verses, three friends. Verse 11 says, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep out loud, and they tore their robes, sprinkled dust on their heads, and they sat with him for seven days and seven nights. And no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. By all intents and purposes, when we read this, what's the intent that these three friends come with? It's good intentions, isn't it? They come to, 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 to be there to support him and to comfort him. It says that when they see him from, a, from afar, they cry out loud, right? That, that they tear their robes, which was customary for the day. Again, another sermon for another day, and put dust on their head. It's a sign of mourning. They come loving Job and are there to offer and try to comfort him. Their intentions are good. And what you see transpire over the next 20 or 30 chapters is conversations between friends giving advice and Job responding. And the first one starts with Eliphaz. I just want to read just a small little snippet because in essence, this is the same theme that all these three friends throw back on Job for 20 to 30 chapters. He says this in Job 4.7. Eliphaz says, consider now, he's talking to Job, who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it at the breath of God. They are destroyed. To summarize Eliphaz's point is, Job, you must have sinned. 
Where are the upright ever destroyed? In my experience, as I have seen it, God gives glory and builds up those who do good and destroys those who do bad. Job, you must have sin in your life. And then Job replies, basically saying, no, but I'm upright. I haven't done this. And he has this long discourse. By the way, read it sometime. If you love literary things, if you love the way things are written, it's actually a very beautifully written book. And there's these imagery and these conversations that go back and forth. And so Job gets done responding to Eliphaz. And then the second friend, Bildad, pipes up and says, "Why, Job, why are you responding with all these long-winded justifications for what you've done? Eliphaz is right. You must have sin in your life. And then Job replies, justifying himself again, saying, but I haven't sinned. I haven't done anything wrong and, and this kind of a thing. And then he gets finished. And then the third friend, Zophar, pipes up, basically repeats the same thing the first two did. And this goes on and on for 20 to 30 chapters. Have you ever watched a movie before that's like three hours long and you think to yourself, this, this could have been done in two hours? Like just, just it's way, it's way too long. To, come on, let's get on with it, right? Now, I don't want to take away from Scripture because it's powerful, but it's a little bit like that. It's the same points being argued round and round and round. And there's these long speeches and Job replies and long speeches and Job replies. And one of the most commonly known ones, Job replies in chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. I just want to read it to you. He says, I have heard many things like these, he says to them. Miserable comforters are you all. Sometimes when somebody's giving you advice, maybe you feel that on the inside, right? Miserable comforters are you all. Well, your long-winded speeches never end. What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you if you were in my place. I can make speeches against you and shake my head at you. And now the character of Job comes back out, the very same thing that God, the Lord, initially told and pointed out to Satan, which was, have you noticed, my boy Job? And the same character comes out, but he says, but my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. And so you have this go on and on and on. And you notice Eliphaz starts out of this idea, the very first comment or advice given to Job is out of my experience, right? As I have seen it, you and I have different sources or influences that anytime we're giving advice, that it flows out from us to the people that we're talking to, even with good intention. And our past experiences are some of the ways that you and I give advice to individuals that we come into contact with, family members, friends. And in and of itself, your past experiences aren't necessarily bad, but it also doesn't necessarily mean that they're right for that circumstance. So you and I have these same filters, these same sources that our advice comes out of, even with good intention like his friends. And finally, the fifth individual to give him advice is Elihu. And we don't know how he gets there, but he opens up his speech by basically saying, I was the youngest of all of you, so I let you go first, he says to the three friends. And he says, I'm angry with the three of you because you're not speaking on behalf of God and you have done nothing to turn Job where he needs to go to help him figure out what's going on. And so he chastises these three individuals, even though their advice has good intention, and even though, don't you, don't you, don't you notice that it seems very biblical, right? They're not saying some crazy things. They're saying, hey, you need to repent before God, right? You, 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 you've got sin. You've got to bring it before God. You've got to repent before him, right? They're even biblical things, but he says, but you're missing the mark. And then Elihu even takes a moment to rebuke Job himself because through this long process that we miss because we can't read it all today, Job starts to have some things happen. This is a discourse that doesn't take place in one day. It takes place over several months. 
And over this, Job more and more gets worn down to the point where he starts questioning God. There's even a bit of pride inside of him that begins to rise up because he hasn't actually, quote unquote, sinned. There's some different things happening. And ultimately, Job has come to a place where a few times has professed it doesn't seem like God is just because he lets those who do evil prosper and look at what he's doing to me. And so Elihu basically takes Job's attention of where it's been in these arguments and he starts to turn it back to the one who has the answers, which is God. And he almost sets the stage and that's where God comes in. And after these 20 to 30 chapters, God finally interrupts and brings truth to the situation. What we see happen is in the end, God says to those three individuals, I'm angry with you. What you have spoken on my behalf is not accurate and not true. And he basically says, you need to go out and perform sacrifices to atone for your sin in the same way that Job had done sacrifices for his kids when they thought they might have sinned in their heart. That's what you did back in that time is you had to make sacrifices of animals to atone for sin. But he doesn't just tell them, hey, go make sacrifices at your home, go on your way. No, he says, you go get the sacrifices and bring them to Job. And I want to punish you, but I'm going to let Job pray for you. And I will do whatever Job says. I mean, talk about eating crow, right? If you're one of those three individuals. And but they do it. And here's Job's character again that comes out as he prays a prayer of forgiveness for them. And then God has a conversation with Job, and it's it's pretty incredible. He's vindicated before his friends, but God clarifies some truth, and he does it in shaping it in the form of a question to Job. I want to give a portion of it to you. It's in Job 38, 4 through 7. God speaks to Job and says this, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On where is its footing set? Or who laid its cornerstone? Well, the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. In essence, God is saying to Job, were you at the beginning of creation with me? I created all of this out of nothing. There was darkness and I made light. I created the heavens and the earth. That mountain that you see over there, I made it out of nothing. Those seas that you get fish out of, I created them. All of those animals that you see, were you there with me? Oh, because you understand. In essence, God is saying, Job, You can't possibly fathom the things that I understand. And Job almost comes full circle back to an initial point that he made as an answer to his wife, which is this understanding that, God, you are God and I am not. Should we just accept good from God and not trouble also? And here's the thing. In every service so far today, it's like a pin would drop because this isn't what we like to hear. As Christians, we don't want to hear this. When we read Job, we want to say, "Mm -mm -mm, that doesn't seem to fit what I know about God. You and I, most of us, have grown up in a very free democratic society. What that means is we could do whatever we want with whatever we want, anytime we want, right? No, no, you can't tell me that I can't believe this. You can't tell me what to do over here. You can't label me like that. I need my, my one phone call. I've got rights. No, 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 you can't tell me what I can or can't do with my body. No, no, right? We live in this idea that what Job went through was unfair, and so it can't be from God, but that is not biblical truth. As a preacher, I'm called to preach the truth in love. I love you enough to tell you the truth. As Christians, we've also grown up in American Christianity. Western culture Christianity, which is God, will always rescue you, will always bring good things for you, and wants no harm for you, and will never put you in harm's way, and I'm telling you that is not, couldn't be farther from the truth. 
You take that ideal that is, is, is rampant throughout the American and Western culture church. No wonder people are so confused when they're dealing with hardship and they get angry with God. You go take that ideal that God will always rescue, always save, and will never allow you to go through stuff, and you go back to the first century church and explain that to the disciples. They will laugh at you. Only one survived and was exiled. One committed suicide. That's Judas before Jesus even died. And the other ten were martyred for the faith. Peter crucified upside down. James, pastor, half-brother of Jesus, pastor of the church in Jerusalem, was taken up to the top of the highest point. Same point that Jesus was tempted by Satan during his 40 days of temptation. And he was thrown off of it over 100 feet. Miraculously, he doesn't die, but they beat him to death. Others were beheaded. Others were stoned or killed by the sword. You go tell them that Jesus and God's purpose and will for your life will never lead you towards that. It's not true. James, you go tell, I'm sorry, Paul, go tell Paul that same thing. I'm going to read something to you here. Acts 21, 10 through 14. says this, After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming over to us, he took Paul's belt off of him. He tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. You go to Paul and tell him, those individuals and friends of Paul probably had great intention. Some of them might have even said, hey, Paul, this is a sign from a prophet. This is God telling you not to go. He's, he's warning you. But Paul knows his calling. He says, this is not a sign not to go. It's a confirmation about that I'm supposed to go. You tell Paul, who all these prisons, beaten so many times, whipped so many times, shipwrecked so many times, that God is only going to lead you to comfortable situations at all points in your life, and it's not accurate. Pastor Nick gave a great example, same topic, last week. You can find this in Matthew chapter 16, 23, but Jesus has just gotten done explaining to his disciples what he's about to go through at the end. His crucifixion, his beating, what he's going to go through to save humanity. And Peter stands up and says, over my dead body, I will not let it happen. We will stand and we will fight. Jesus' words to Peter are far less nice as Paul's words to his friends. Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What was Peter's intent? What was Paul's friend's intent? Sometimes you and I, just like those individuals, give advice out of our own bias, out of our own emotion, and how it's going to affect us. They had good intention. Paul, we don't want you to go. We don't want you to be back. Jesus, we don't, we're going to stand up and fight for you. We love you. Good intentions, but not of God. And so the question for us is that even though we have good intentions, it doesn't always mean it's going to be the right thing. There are other sources and influences that we give advice to people. Sometimes if we see somebody suffering, we just want to give them advice because we want them to feel better. Is that so bad? Right? It's a natural tendency to want to protect people from trouble. But the truth is, knowing what we now know, sometimes we might be protecting them from the will of God for their life, which could include trouble. If that's the advice and that's the source that we come out of. Here's another one. Do we give it out of just worldly knowledge? doesn't mean worldly knowledge is always bad, but doesn't mean it's always good. 
How does it line up with scripture? How about cultural norms or political correctness? How much advice? Because, well, that's what everybody's saying. Well, man, you can't say that or you're going to have everybody mad at you, right? If somebody's dealing with a topic that stands in stark contrast, and I can name a lot of them that we would be very uncomfortable if I did, how does it match up with scripture? And now I'll throw you for a loop. Not only do you got to make sure it's biblical, but the three friends of Job were giving biblical advice. Repent of your sin. Turn towards God. You can't do this. The problem is is they missed diagnosing what the real problem was. They were just using something that they had seen in the past and applying it and saying that must be your situation. There are lots, even though Job was not punished because of sin, there are lots of instances in Scripture where individuals are, aren't they? One prescription is not always a one-size-fits-all scenario. You ever been in a situation, I don't want you to raise your hand, but just think about this. Ever been in a situation where somebody's seeking advice and you just kind of feel like, man, I don't know what to say. And yet we say something anyways because we feel like we have to. You know, sometimes I think it would be better to not say anything, give any advice at all except to point them to the one who does have the answers. I don't have this all figured out. I'm simply telling you, I pray for people a lot. I mean, in, in the profession that I'm in, people ask for prayer. A lot of times it's on Sunday morning here. I just had a call this weekend, impossible, traumatic, crazy family situation. At the end of it, I offered some advice because that's what this individual was seeking. But at the end, as he's telling me this, I am praying in the back of my mind and I encourage you to do the same when people are asking for advice. Holy Spirit, I need your discernment. It can be biblical, but I need to know accurately what's happening because you see so much farther beyond just what I'm hearing, the variables that they're sharing, and I need you to speak through me. And at the end of it, I just said, man, this looks like this and this looks like this, but I'm going to encourage you. You need to pr- I'm going to point you to the person who has the answers. You need to pray like you've never prayed before. You need to fast like you've never fasted before. You need to wrestle with God like Jacob did until he gives you an answer. Because I don't have the answer for you, but I will point you to the direction of the one who does. I want to close with this. Coming all the way back to the very first question of why it was a little bit slower to raise hands with the one question. Because most of us probably view the advice that we've given because we've had good intentions. But I want you to hear this. Good intentions don't automatically equal good advice. I want to say it again. Good intentions don't automatically equal good advice. A lot of really bad things. Some really bad things have happened in the course of history with good intentions. To come full circle at the end of Job, what we see, and here's the other bookend, is that everything is given back to Job double. All of those cattle that he lost, all of those things that he lost, and in the end, he basically says, God, you're God and I'm not. Will I love you just in the good or will I follow you even in trouble? He says, I've spoken once, I've spoken twice, but I'm done. God, I put my heart back on you. You're God. You know bigger than I know. You understand things that I, you see things that I don't see. And it says that it was given back to him double the amount of sheep and cattle that he had. He had seven more sons and three more daughters, and he lived a really long life. But what does that mean for you and I? You and I regularly have opportunities to lend advice to those around us. The Bible says that our words can bring life and death. It can help or hinder a person's walk. But no matter the circumstance, the individual, or the scenario, we always need to be aware of what source or influence our words and our advice are coming from 
for each specific situation. And if you've asked the question, well, how much does my, my advice really matter? I mean, I mean, how much weight do my words really give somebody? I'm here to tell you a lot. Some in your lives will weigh more for certain people than others, especially if it's family or people that trust you. But your words and your advice mean a lot. And the question for us when we're giving it is to, number one, pray, Holy Spirit, I need you to help me in this. God, I need you to give me discernment and wisdom to lead them with the right information. And then we need to ask ourselves a question. Are we leading them towards the will of God in their life with our advice? Or are we keeping them from it? God, we thank you. God, for the book of Job, which is not necessarily fun to read. And yet there are powerful biblical truths that we find in it. God, I pray for anybody who is in this room today that for whatever reason has been living in an understanding Maybe the preachers in their past, or maybe it's their first time here, whatever it is, this understanding that we will never have troubles, that God is only, God, that you're only a rescuer, that you'll only do those things, that God, we would understand the truth that you are so much bigger, you understand so much more than we do, and we simply want your will for our lives, even if it makes trouble, even if it brings trouble, God, we want your will. I pray for a brokenness in our hearts that want to say, well, that's not fair. Where our culture weighs in and steers us and lies to us and deceives us that that's how it's supposed to be. Would you break that off and that we would believe truth, that we would hear the truth and that God in that place that we would be set free. And last, God, I simply pray for each one of us as the opportunities arrive to give advice to those around us, would we prayerfully consider the weight of our words and that even though it's good intent, God, we want to know your will for them and to point them towards you, ultimately, who has the answers so that they could walk in your will for their life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Podcast. If you want to keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook or sign up for our e-newsletter at grove.church.